What if I could share with you the worst day of my professional life, without fear of judgment or ridicule, and without loss of respect? Could we learn together from my experience? Case Matters, a podcast series created for Australian dental practitioners, intends to do just that. To create a shared experience where all points of view are explored to help empower safer practice. Hello, my name's Dr. Annaline Weston, dental legal consultant at Dental Protection, and I'm going to guide you through today's case entitled, Why Didn't You Tell Me? In our last episode of Case Matters, I knew it could happen, I just didn't think it could happen to me. We explored the common scenario where the requisite risks and warnings are given to a patient prior to the procedure. However, the patient doesn't really identify with the information provided as being relevant to them and dismisses it. This can mean a nasty shock all round if an adverse outcome does arise, with both the patient and the clinician feeling somewhat cheated. The patient because they may feel foolish or perhaps even victimised, and the clinician because they've given all of the relevant information, so they remain confused as to how they could have ended up without valid consent at play. Today's case looks at the other side of the coin, a case where the patient was not informed of the risks of a procedure. Many parties became involved after the event and everyone had an opinion. But which view was correct? All of them? Or just some of them? And is there such a thing as the right point of view in this at all? Or could it perhaps be that everyone's a little bit right and a little bit wrong? We'll hear from the people involved and also look at the final outcome to see what lessons can be learned. I'll hand over to my colleague, Kristen Trafford-Weisel, who is the case manager in this matter to outline the situation. Kristen? Thanks, Annaline. As you'd be aware, issues can arise in any treatment, in the pre-treatment conversation or during the post-treatment management of care. There are steps we can take to moderate our risk, but risk is always present. Some treatment modalities carry with them a higher risk, usually due to their complexity, the high chance of a poor outcome, or the elective nature of a treatment. As treatment we need is often associated with less risk, an elective or cosmetic treatment that we want may carry more risk, usually associated with aesthetic outcome rather than a functional outcome. Dental protection manages cases across the world and one global commonality is the large number of complaints, cases or claims that relate to the field of endodontics, which when you consider through the filter of complexity makes absolute sense. Endo is hard. The most common theme in endodontic cases is the failure to warn a patient that a fractured file can occur during the canal preparation. Clinicians consider this to be an inherent risk, which it is. However, if we don't tell the patient all of the relevant risks and warnings before we start treatment, and a known risk occurs, then we can be found to have been negligent. This has been borne out in the courts, famously in Australia, in Rogers and Whitaker, and upheld more recently in a UK case called Montgomery. Thank you, Kristen. We'll put the links to the cases you mentioned in the speaker's notes. And of course, it isn't just endo that carries with it inherent risk, as we'll see in this case. Mr Hill was a fit and well patient in his 50s. He had a moderate restorative burden, as he did have a sweet tooth when he was younger, but he'd not had any active decay for some time. He attended regularly for his checkup and cleans, which were gap-free, and had not had any other treatment undertaken for a while. Between these checkups, he scheduled an appointment with Dr. Graham, his dentist of many years, and I'll ask him to tell us why. I have a tooth that I don't really like. 
It's one of those front ones and it has a black filling at the back and wrapping around the side that was placed when I was a kid. I've had a small win on the pokies at my local RSL for a change. Look, nothing big, but enough to pay off some bills and get a few things I wanted and I have some left over, so getting this tooth fixed is my priority. I really want that black feeling gone because when I smile, my lip comes up really high and it's all I can see, especially in photos. One of the lads I go fishing with had white crowns and they look really good. Although I would never tell him that. So I went to ask the doc for a crown. For clarity, the large amalgam is in Mr Hill's lateral incisor and it was placed because he had an invagination of his tooth. There's a much smaller palatal amalgam contralaterally, but this is not visible from the front. What are Mr Hill's options for this lateral incisor and, based on the information available to you, do you think a crown's a good one? Is there anything you might try first? And what do you think is going to happen next? Mr Hill attended to see Dr Graham and explained the situation. What do you think, Dr Graham? Look, it's a pretty straightforward job. Harry's a great bloke. I've been seeing him for years. He's got good oral hygiene and pretty good periodontal health. We did talk about doing something for that front tooth years ago, but cost was a worry for him at the time. He wants a crown, and I can certainly give him a crown in that space as his occlusion is favourable. I did outline the possibility of a filling, but a crown is definitely going to look nicer here. My next patient is cancelled, so I'll just get on with it for him today. He certainly seems very motivated. Dr Graham talked through the white crown options, perhaps glossing over the option of a large composite filling, and Mr Hill gave consent to proceed. Dr Graham did not take a history about why the large filling was originally placed, assuming caries to be the culprit. He did not pulp test the tooth. He did not take a periapical radiograph. Dr. Graham numbed the tooth up, removed the old amalgam and placed a composite core and then prepped the tooth for an all-ceramic crown. A temporary crown was placed after the impression was taken. I'm really pleased how that went. The crown prep was immaculate. The tooth already looks better with the temporary on it. It was a really big amalgam for a lateral. Harry was really happy when he left. It's funny, I really didn't know that it had been bothering him so much for the last few years, as I would have suggested solutions to him sooner. Mr Hill went home feeling really confident and comfortable. The temporary looked fantastic and gave him high hopes for the permanent crown. The area felt bruised and swollen from the local anaesthetic, but otherwise there was nothing to report. At first. I knew the doc would get it sorted for me. I haven't had a dental treatment for a long time. And it was a lot easier than I remembered. The tooth does feel strange to me though. Touchy, like, like I'm biting on foil. The touchiness went on to become a predictable pain to cold drinks and then hot. Mr Hill was very happy to return to Dr Graham to get the final crown placed and at the start of the appointment reported the sensations he had been experiencing. I'm surprised he had a bit of sensitivity. He didn't seem the type. But looking back, we never really have done any active treatment. So maybe he's just sensitive after treatment, as so many people are. And the temporary was a bit worn palatally, which surprised me too, as I thought we were well clear of the bite. Of course, he's been biting on fishing line, and I've told him this has to stop with the crown. I've told him what I could see, as well as the advice about the fishing line, he seems okay with that. 
but I'd better write it down in my notes what I told him, just in case. The doc glued the new crown on and it looks mint. I should have done this years ago, especially as I had a whole stack of money as a bonus or something on my health fund that I didn't know about because I've never used it. So it barely cost me a thing at all. I think I'm having a lucky streak. I'm definitely going to buy a lotto ticket on the way home. Regretfully, Mr Hill's luck is about to run out. Within a matter of weeks, the crowned tooth began to pound uncontrollably, sending him back to see Dr Graham. The tooth has died. I explained this to Harry, who was understandably upset, but agreed with me that these things can happen. I didn't have much time today, so I gave him the information sheet to read about root canal treatment while I did a check-up in the next surgery. Then I'll come back and we'll get on with it. Do you think this is a reasonable way to obtain consent? And what potential issues do you see with approaching consent in this way, if any? Let's check in with Mr Hill. Well, this just got really awkward. I'm not a great reader. In fact, I'm a bad reader. I don't know if I'm dyslexic or what, but I just find reading hard, like really hard. I don't like to talk about it because it's embarrassing and I I don't want people to think I'm thick. It was like that at school. Terrible how kids can be. And since I left school, I've just avoided it. There is no way I'm telling the doc. I don't see it really matters. I trust him. It wasn't ideal that the tooth died, but it's probably because I did something wrong. And like he said, unforeseen. Sometimes these things just happen. And look, I can read a bit of it. All good. The stats regarding the reported incidents of dyslexia are highly variable, with between 5 and 20% of the population believed to be affected. When coupled with the outcome of the studies on literacy in Australia, which reveal that one-fifth of Australian adults have limited literacy and numeracy skills, simply making assumptions about a patient's capabilities to read and comprehend complex information, such as the risks and warnings of a procedure that they've never had before, is a dangerous assumption to make. It is important to remember that consent is a conversation and cannot be replaced by an administrative process. Similarly, if your patient speaks and reads English as a second language, the written word alone may not be sufficient. Now we know that Mr Hill is not going to tell Dr Graham he's had some issues reading the standard information, but the risks and warnings should also be captured by the conversation that he and Dr Graham will have when Dr Graham returns to the room and prior to the treatment. So it shouldn't matter. Dr. Graham returned to the room and asked Mr. Hill if he'd read the document, to which he replied yes. He then asked him to sign a consent form, which Mr. Hill glanced at before stating, everything seemed to be in order, and signed on the dotted line. Do you believe Mr. Hill understands the risks and warnings? Do you believe Dr. Graham has valid consent to proceed? Dr. Graham, in the belief he had valid consent in place, administered local anaesthetic and proceeded to create an access cavity. Have you ever tried to drill through an all-ceramic crown? It's hard, very hard, and it can be easy to get lost when trying to locate your access. Plus, Dr. Graham has still not taken a PA, which may have helped to guide him. Eventually, Dr. Graham broke through the crown and was surprised at how much blood came out from the canal during extirpation. He was even more surprised when he fractured a rotary endodontic file. 
The surprise turned to shock when he finally took a PA and saw the anatomy of the root was not as he had anticipated and he had perforated and left a fractured file behind, not entirely contained within the root. Look, this is not ideal, but Harry's a decent bloke and he went into this knowing what could go wrong. But did he? Did he truly know what could go wrong? And even if he did, did he know that the tooth could die from the crown preparation in the first instance? And was a crown his best and only option? And finally, had Dr. Graham taken an x-ray sooner, would he have changed his plan? A temporary dressing was placed and Dr. Graham sat Mr. Hill up to organise the referral. Mr. Hill had a lot of questions about what had happened and why, which is in many ways a red light regarding his lack of understanding of the procedure at the time. His main question was, why didn't you tell me this could happen? And how did Dr. Graham respond? I was a bit annoyed that Harry seemed to be trying to suggest that he didn't understand what was going on, to be honest. So I said to him, look, mate, you read the information, you signed the form, you gave consent. That seemed to shut him down. But I don't know. It all felt off to me. We usually get on so well, but he seemed almost sulky when he left with the referral. Well, it's not my problem. I gave him all the information. That's what informed consent is for. Regretfully, that is not what informed consent is. Earlier, Kristen raised the recent case of Montgomery, and in that the judge stated... The doctor's duty is not fulfilled by bombarding the patient with technical information which they cannot reasonably expect it to grasp, let alone by routinely demanding their signature on a consent form. I think we can fairly say this statement would apply in this situation too. Mr Hill felt uncomfortable about the way the whole situation had unfolded. He confided in a close friend that night and that friend had a sister-in-law who was a lawyer. He was pretty confident Harry had been treated poorly and asked his permission to speak to his sister-in-law. Reluctantly, this was given. The lawyer had a chat with Mr Hill and was very interested to hear how the conversation of consent took place. They sought a copy of the records and the consent form and also an expert report regarding whether the treatment Dr Graham had provided was in keeping with accepted practice. They found the following. I like Harry. He's a nice man. And so I said I would have a look, not really expecting to find anything, but I was wrong. This is a comedy of errors. Starting with consent, there is no evidence that Harry was offered any alternatives to a crown, including a filling, and my expert says this should have been the first treatment to try. There is also no evidence that Harry was told that the nerve of the tooth could die after the crown. Next, Dr Graham did not undertake an appropriate assessment. No history, limited examination. He didn't test whether the nerve of the tooth was alive and he didn't take an x-ray. This falls outside of accepted practice. Dr Graham's records indicate that he was aware that the tooth was symptomatic before he cemented the permanent crown and yet he still took no steps to assess the cause. His records do, however, reflect a victim-blaming conversation where he seems to imply that the fault lies with Harry for biting on fishing line. This is further compounded by the lack of care Dr Graham took after the tooth died. There is no evidence of Harry ever being given the risks and warnings. Granted, he did sign a consent form, but there's no way that leaving someone to read a form that they may or may not have read or understood and then getting them to sign counts as consent. So, no consent, no assessment, and it's questionable whether the treatment constitutes accepted practice.
I know that familiarity breeds contempt, and I have no doubt that Dr. Graham's treatment of Mr. Hill was over-familiar at best. Harry deserves better than being stood on the mat like a child after yet another thing went wrong during his care, and I'm going to help him get what he deserves. I think it's time we wrote Dr. Graham a letter. Oftentimes, we do not receive a letter, but rather a statement of claim, which can be an escalation and often includes an overestimation of what the matter is truly worth. In this case, however, as the lawyer was a family friend, she was working for nothing and had no desire to drag the matter out. She knew Mr Hill had a strong case and she also knew what the matter was worth. Despite everything, Mr Hill did not actually want to sue Dr Graham, but he did want an apology an explanation, and some assistance with the cost of the implant that he now needed, as the specialist had assessed the perforation had rendered the tooth unrestorable. A letter was penned, which Dr Graham passed to dental protection. Having assessed this matter, Dr Graham is best served by settling out of court. It was very difficult for him to understand how his signed consent form was not evidence of valid consent. It was very hard for him to read the expert report which was highly critical of his care. With time, he came to understand where he'd let himself and Mr Hill down, and we entered into a confidential and out-of-court settlement with Mr Hill. Thank you, Kristen. A disappointing outcome. However, in our role as observers, we can see the lawyer's criticisms and critical expert report left no other option. Could you share with us some learning points from this matter, please? Of course, Annaline. I think there are a few areas where we could all take some learning from this particular situation. Firstly, we often talk about the benefit of getting to know and building rapport with our patients. This building of trust can help establish a positive treating relationship and assist in open communication. What happens though when we become overly familiar? Every patient we treat deserves the benefit of appropriate assessment, diagnosis and the ability to be involved in the decisions of all the options. This is a trap that can be easy to fall into when treating close friends or even family and may possibly have contributed here in this matter. Though Mr Hill came in with a view as to what he wanted and trusted that Dr Graham could provide this for him, it was still appropriate that Dr Graham conducted a thorough assessment, including all the relevant special tests, to ensure that Mr Hill was fully informed of his options, starting from the most conservative and what was most appropriate based on the clinical assessment. Do you believe that Dr. Graham assessed Mr. Hill with the appropriate special tests, adequately explaining all the options available, and importantly, what the risks and benefits were of these potential choices for either the initial crown or the root canal treatment? This can take us along to the next point on how Dr. Graham was confused as to how the signed consent form was not evidence of valid consent. If you have listened to some of Dental Protection's previous podcasts, you will be aware that consent is a conversation, not an administrative process or a form. This is because such a form cannot be held to be binding if there is no evidence that the patient has been given the adequate information for them and their particular scenario and what this treatment really means for them personally and that we are confident that this has been understood. By handing patients a long and confusing form that may be full of technical jargon for them to read, makes a number of problematic assumptions. Firstly, that literacy is to the level required. As by the statistics provided earlier, literacy in the adult population of Australia is wide and varied. 
and this can be further problematic in populations where English is a second language. We then need to further consider that if they're able to read it, have they understood the messages and the particular points that are of significant relevance to them? Are they comfortable and confident enough to ask questions if they haven't understood the information? This would be hard to establish with a cursory, any questions mate, good to go, and not taking the time to go through things. I was also interested to see how Dr. Graham had reacted overall. Did you feel like he may have been somewhat dismissive of Mr. Hill and his concerns? Did this surprise you, considering the long-standing relationship and friendship they shared? As you're likely aware, the complaints process can be a difficult experience to navigate, with it often activating those inbuilt heightened flight or fight responses. When we are stressed, we lose the benefit of higher function thinking and can fall into our default protective behaviour patterns, which may include defensive or aggressive, passive or dismissive. Which do you think you are? And do you think it would be helpful in dealing with the situation? It can be helpful to be aware of this and to take the time to take a deep breath and really consider our responses, as sometimes our emotional and knee-jerk reactions are not at all how we would anticipate that we would respond and may not be how we wished we had reacted when we have the luxury of reviewing things when the dust settles. Overall, there are many lessons that can be gleaned from this situation and we will all likely take something different depending on our life experiences and viewpoints, though I do hope you have found this all to be of value as we all consider how we can improve in our daily practice and interactions with our patients. Thank you for setting that out for us, Kristen, and thank you all for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this edition of Case Matters. The cases discussed in Case Matters are presented as an educational aid to dental protection members and to act as a risk management tool. They're based on issues arising in dental protection cases in Australia, and some facts have been altered to preserve confidentiality. If you like dental protection podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.